On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are thrilled to welcome back Lisa Tadeo. Lisa is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Three Women, which she is adapting as a dramatic series at Showtime, and the novel Animal. Her short stories have not only been nominated for, but won the Pushcart Prize twice, and both of those stories are included in her new collection, Ghost Lover, which is out now. Welcome back to Pop Fiction Women, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. I love this. This is one of my favorite podcasts in the whole world. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you. So you know that we like to talk about complicated women on this podcast, (laughs) and complicated women have complicated relationships with one another, which you really explore and expose in this collection of short stories. As women, I think we've all received and internalized messages designed to keep us in a constant state of competition, pitted against one another, perhaps so we can't band together. That might be my working theory. So for example, in Air Supply, you mentioned the tiny competitions among two female friends. In American Girl, a story about three women eyeing each other around a hot young senatorial candidate they all adore. You write this. The famous actress wondered if any woman had ever been happy for any other woman in the history of the world. And that suddenly made me think of Taylor Swift's song, Mad Women, where she sings um, (laughs) women like hunting witches too. So we'd love to hear Mm -hmm. what draws you to exploring this darker side of relationships among women and how we as women are complicit in it. Yeah, and you know, I'm so happy that that you bring up Taylor Swift because I I feel such a kinship to her. I always say to my husband if I were younger and, <laughs> and blonde and super uh whatever, I would be Taylor. No, I'm just kidding. I feel like she has had a lot of experiences that have made her feel obviously she's super famous and when you get to that people start trying to tear you down and you know she sings about men doing that but she also sings about women doing and talks about women doing that and I don't think that not a lot of women do talk about that because it's kind of anathema it is exposing it is almost can put you into the category of, oh, she doesn't have any faith in womankind is kind of the the way that you can get bottled and cubbyholed when you discuss the very real competitions that so for me, it's that same feeling. I don't think that it's every woman and I don't think it's every situation, but I I think it's a lot of situations. And I think that we are very silent about it because I think talking about it is hurtful and scary 
And so we don't really talk about the competition, but I think that when we do, and we can be honest about it, not only with one another, like me talking to a friend saying, Mm. I feel this, but even just out in the open, the way that I'm doing in in that story or in other stories and other books, for me, it's been a lifelong thing. The desire for a genuine and close female friendship and sisterhood, and also the betrayals that happen when you have those things. And wanting that and also getting hurt by it is something that is a big part of all of our lives, I think. But I like to talk about it because it makes me feel less crazy Yeah, um, to kind of, you know, have it be top of mind. It's like we're only supposed to be aspirational, like only write the stories where the best friends skip off into the sunset. Mm -hmm. But and that's great. And I think that's great to aspire to more connectivity and more working together. But the reality is, especially as young women, when you're finding yourself, a lot of it becomes defining yourself against what else is going on. And and those are your friends. Exactly. Yeah. And also, it doesn't diminish one's relationship with another woman mm, yeah. to talk about the things that are difficult in in a relationship. A lot of my female relationships in Ghost Lover are fraught, but they're also incredibly fulfilling. In Suburban Weekend, two young women, one of them, without giving it away, there's life-saving going on, right? And I think that that's the beauty of a female friendship is that one second they can make you cry and feel like you're a piece of garbage, and then the next second they're saving your life. And are those extremes... Yes. Are they also realistic? Yes. Women have the power to both make each other feel awful and also lift each other out of the depths. And I think that discussing the line between those two things is something that really interests me. And the interplay. Like sometimes exactly. it's the on- the ones that can hurt you the most are the ones who can help you the most. And that exactly. often kind of goes together because with that intimacy is a deep hurt, but also a deep opportunity for healing. I mean, you already talked about my next question, which was, and the same, uh, I was going to talk about Fern and Liv and, and without giving anything away, I said it was life affirming, like that allows them to carry on. And also it was at the end of Animal too, the hope and the healing between Joan and Alice too. It's, uh, you know, they have somewhere to grow from where they are. And it, again, it's because they have such a deep effect on each other. And it's something that you can't find anywhere else. I wanted to read a line from A Suburban Weekend, like you were just talking about. At one point, Fern giggled, Seb said, shh, and they fucked dementedly. She felt more at peace with this boy she barely knew than with Liv, who always needed to know what she was doing and how she was feeling. And you're like, sometimes, you know, it's easier to get lost in the body, in the in the something else of mindlessness of love or sex and the ones who really care, the ones who need to know what you're doing and how you're feeling, that can be harder to face. Not because they don't love each other, but because they do. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. I feel like as I've gotten older and met women after, I think there's also a giant difference between being friends when you're single and being friends after and some of the same things are still there but it is a different relationship that you form 
And I have found that my friendships that I've formed in later life, a lot of that stuff is is out of the way. Not that it doesn't come up in other ways, but mm-hmm. it's just it's just different. It's easier. I mean, for me, I was talking to someone the other day about it. It's like, it's not just competition, I think, with other women. It's also the kind of the opposite of competition. Like, there were so many times with friends of mine that when I knew that one of them was having a bad time in love or whatever, and we would be like out at a bar. And if someone that we were both interested in was talking to me, I would try to make myself smaller, less whatever. I wouldn't preen or do anything that I thought might attract attention. So there's also that aspect of it too, that sometimes when you have other, for me specifically, you know, and we kind of touched on the mommy issue stuff at the top of this, but for me, I've always wanted to take care of other women because of my mommy issues. So I've been more of that than competing So that that feeling that Fern feels is something that I really identify with is the idea of not needing to take care of someone in the moment. And when, you know, when Fern is with men, me with men too, I do not, much to my husband's chagrin, feel the need to take care of men in (laughs) any way, shape or form. Like this morning when our daughter's rescued mouse half passing away, sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. my husband wanted me in a sense to take care of him too, and how he was feeling about our daughter's loss. And I was like, I don't have time, but no, get out of my way. (laughs) Like That is not what's happening today. I mean, like you can go do that by yourself. So yeah, but I mean, I, I think I, I wish I had a little bit more of that desire to to take care of a man, my husband in particular, but I really have it for women, not just my kids, for literally all of my yeah, friends. Yeah. I just like, I want to yeah. take care of women because I have, I mean, not just because I have mommy issues, I just really genuinely care about yeah. women. But mm-hmm. in a lot of my writing, I think that a lot of that frustration of me always wanting to care for women comes out. Like when my mom was dying and I was taking care of her, I had tons of frustration. I would just feel like she wasn't doing enough to take mm. care of herself. Anyway, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to just, Yeah. <laughs> like, no. whenever there's an opportunity for darkness, I, I bring it up. We plunge um, right in. But- yeah, us too. <laughs> us too. I also think you're right. It isn't just about competition. And so like once you're married, you're not competing. And so therefore you can get along better. It, that might be one element of it. I know for me, so much of my pursuit for love was like filling a, a hole. And so when I had that hole filled, now no woman needs a man, but I did, you know, and I was always trying to fill it that way. It doesn't ultimately ever get you there. You have to figure out how to fill that with something more substantial. But but it was the first level of my stopping the bleeding of whatever was bleeding out of my heart and I that so a layer of insecurity for myself was gone and in that way I could be a better friend once I felt loved again that's a beginning of a long journey but it is real it's real and you know what you're saying Quinn too we are taught that that feeling of needing to have the man or you know whatever type of person you're interested in fill you up so that you can then be there for other people like you're saying that was like a first path to stopping the bleeding I think that's a beautiful way of putting it but 
yes, it's not the right way, but we're not only taught that it's not the right way and that there's another way, we're kind of taught that if we even feel that way, we are despicable humans and we are not feminists, we are not, (laughs) that's not really cool or fair because it's something else, right? And to look at someone who has this need rather than trying to help them figure out the area around that where that need takes root we're just like no 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 that's the wrong way and that just makes us more paralyzed yes absolutely exactly. I, you could tell even the way i was trying to explain it i'm like look don't you know yeah, don't don't, yes, I, don't I, do I know, yeah. it's wrong. I know and it, i know i feel the exact and yeah. That's yeah, how I yeah. for so long too and it's like it's this like kate i think you said at the top have we been taught to put each other down so that we don't we can band together and i i don't yeah. i don't think that you know i don't know that there's a conscious game of thrones type strategy yes. person out there doing it but i think that ultimately that's where it's coming from this fear of you know what ha- that's really what all subjugation comes from is a fear of the yeah. person coming up and rising our, above right rising and up. our collective wisdom exactly. could you imagine what we could do with that exactly Exactly. Oh, well, this is going to lead to another way. I believe we're being kept down here. And so, <laughs> yeah, continuing with these dynamics among women. I mean, your stories really nail this scathing internal self-criticism and loathing that women mm-hmm. often consume themselves with. Again, likely due to the messages we receive about youth and beauty and thinness and this sort of exhaustive pursuit of physical perfection. And I wanted to read a couple passages from some of your stories that I think really nail this. So A Suburban Weekend, you write, Fern was skinnier than Liv, but Liv was blonde and tall, and her breasts were enormous and thrillingly. (laughs) In American Girl, you say she was beautiful and smart and would someday be a wonderful mother, but she knew that wasn't enough. Loving herself wasn't even enough. These days, women have to be a million things. Being beautiful was passe. And then nothing's ever enough, though, as we're saying, we're also not supposed to age. We can't age either, right? So you have the story 42, where an older woman discovers her ex-lover is about to marry a younger woman. And in that, you write eyelash tinting, for example. Nowadays, if you have a one-night stand, you can't run into the bathroom in the morning to apply mascara. It's expected that your eyelashes are always black and thick as caterpillars. So clearly, in case you can't tell, I am guilty as charged. I have lash extensions. And I read that and I literally almost died. I'm like, oh, I'm so busted right there. But see, no, but that's, I don't, oh, I I hope that. No, but I love them. No, 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 because this is what I'm going to say. I love them and they make me happy. So it's totally fine. But all of this, I've talked about this with a lot of authors. I mean, I always come back to the same question with all of this stuff, which is how do we stop? I mean, how do we reprogram ourselves as women? Because I don't know how to stop. I And I I don't. (laughs) I'm hoping you might. Here's my answer. I don't know that we need to stop. I've done everything on the beauty spectrum. You can look at me right now and see that I have not been 
keeping up with that. But I have at some point or another in my mm-hmm. life done eyelash extensions, eyelash tinting. I, you know, dye my brow. I, I've like, there's nothing that I've tried microblading. If there's something new out there that is not FDA approved, at least, you know, back before too crazy of a job and a child, if it was out there and I could afford it or some cheap version of it, I mean, thermo micro and I would get stuff without even like looking on Google review I was just like Mm -hmm. I was I'm I'm just wild when it comes to that stuff Um, that is me I I never read a single thing I'm just like cool I'll try it cool I'll try it meanwhile I'd I'd research a vacuum for like or a washing machine for weeks but yeah sure you want to put it on my face or hit me with it yeah that's fine yeah let's take it exactly Yeah. And so part of me has that sort of search for the ultimate item that's going to make me feel whole inside or or the combination of the 77 items that when all put together in the morning, if you have the seven hours are all going to make it work for you and make you feel gorgeous. You know, I don't think it's wrong if you have the time and that is what you want to do to to look for that. I think that what's wrong is the, not what's wrong. There's a lot of things wrong, obviously, with thinking that you need to, but we've grown up with, and I'm, I'm not even talking about people talking about things that happen in adult shows. Like we shouldn't show violence towards women in, in X or Y or Z, even though it's happening all the time. I don't think that that's the stuff that we should be worried about. I think we should be worried about what our kids are reading and, and hearing and seeing. And that's where it starts. The other day I was putting on makeup and my daughter was letting, it was just to go to a dog show with her friends and their moms. And my daughter saw me putting on mascara and was like, why are you putting on mascara? You're just seeing your friends. And, you know, that question, like, I I try not to put makeup on in front of my daughter. So I wanted to be like, I actually put makeup on even when I'm going to the post office. Then I was like, wait, that's not the right (laughs) angle either. (laughs) (laughs) So in trying to determine what the right path is, and I think there's multiple right path. Like we also talked about, you know, my, my mouse half died this morning. And I was asking you guys, do I do a funeral or do, does it magically get resurrected? <laughs> for me, the path is not, you know, this is the right way. It's having people around you to go, oh shit. All right. So here, which is what you guys did for me. Like when my kid's hamster died, this is what, yeah. you know, we did. And I think that sort of that kindness and that understanding that we're all in that same boat and just taking care of each other on the boat and going here, I have a solution that might help you. I don't know if it's going to help you, but it it helped me. That to me is how we get better and do better. Not looking at the eyelash tinting and going or eyelash extent or whatever and going like, no, look at you. You're trying to be hot and that's not okay. Even though we've been telling you to do that your whole life. Um, (laughs) it's just mean, it's It's more meanness to me. It's like, look at your eyelash. They make you feel like, I mean, when I have a manicure, like my nails are disgusting. When I have a manicure, I feel more clean and like better about myself. And do I need to find the source of why that's happening? Yeah. But do I, if I don't have the time today, I'm just going to go get the fucking manicure. Manicure. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, all the things that if someone's like, it just makes me feel better, like me with the lashes, you with the manicure. The thing that I always struggle with is with the 
constant discussions, which Corinne has no friends that do this. So I need to hang out with more of Corinne's people. The, the, Corinne the has weight no discussions. No, the <laughs> diet, the weight, the what are you eating? Like, I, I want to stop those right. conversations with other people, mostly because they're boring. I mean, let's be honest. Right. I don't really want to talk about that. And I don't have daughters. But I have friends who have daughters and they're having these conversations in front of them. And, I, and they're now they're like tweens and teens. And I'm like, no, no, like that's the part I want to try and reprogram. And I, yeah. I've tried to make this pact after we talked to the poet Kate Bear. Um, oh, she's like, I'm j- yeah, she oh, was I like, I just that. don't talk about it anymore. If my yeah. friends are talking about it, I just get up and walk away. Not rudely, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Like, I just choose not to participate in conversations like that. So once she told me that, I have tried to redirect conversations like that or whatever. Yeah, but, you know, primping things. You want to do your lashes. I love them. That That's fine. But some of these things, I'm like, how oh, do we yeah. stop this kind but, of conversation? You know, but, but then to the flip side of that, what I will say, because I do, I totally hear and, and agree. And I think, I think walking away is... That's one great option if you don't want to be around for. For me, it's like, you know, sometimes I'll say like, oh my God, like, you know, I was in this workout thing the other day with just a couple of my friends and the instructor was like, you know, zip up your core. And I'm like, zip up my core. (laughs) Like I have this Syrian star, my core. I don't have a core. I made some joke, you know, and like everyone laughed and it was funny. And then I, I've done the same thing in another zone. And then people go like, no, don't say that about yourself. So there's, there's those two different areas. I would like to be able to, you know, make a joke about myself just because it makes me feel a little bit again, better. When it comes to being around my kid, I am super like, you know, like just do I don't talk about it. Like when she like brought a dress to me, she's like, wear this mommy. And I didn't have the, I was like, that's a size zero. That's from when mommy was 26. So we can hold on to that for you. But I didn't say that. I was just like, oh, I love that. But that's, I don't think that's going to fit me anymore. You know, I feel like, and she's like, why wouldn't it fit you? And I was like, change. So I'm very like careful when it comes to that stuff. But that's what brings me back to what I said earlier when it comes to children's movies and literature and what they're it's like it's still so ingrained that even if you are completely perfect in your parenting it's still gonna come up it's just not there's just nothing you can do about it it's gonna come up whether it's from school or you know stuff that they see and when it does come up I think the answer is you know to understand that that they're going through the same things that we went through that yes it's Mm -hmm. sadly still like this I mean, I think we can take a lot of the pressure off of ourselves and the fact that it is, there's a biological history to why these things are the way they are. It's it's the reason that, you know, we have incels amongst men. I actually had a great conversation with Amiya Srinivasan, I'm sure you guys know uh, the right to sex. We talked the other day about the male sense of entitlement and and like them being like why don't they get to have this and why and you know for men there's this idea that they need to either be successful or also attractive and if they're not you know men go through that stuff too in in different ways it's not as toxic i think for men but it is toxic enough that it's created a movement 
of mm-hmm. men who feel entitled to have more but do not. So, you know, it's there. It's going to be there for everybody, this biological need to kind of attract a member of the opposite sex or the same sex is there ingrained within us. And we need to figure out how to let ourselves feel that need and not completely claw our (laughs) insides out to try to erase it. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I do think signaling that that conversation isn't interesting to you, like, I don't want to just talk about diets and food intake is is certainly one way I I find with my daughter more conversation is better. She has a friend who's very competitive in ballet. And she said she eats salads every day and that I had been recently giving my daughter salads. And so she asked me, do you want me to lose weight because you've been giving me salads? And I said, I'm so glad you asked. I understand that your friend is eating salad to manage her weight for ballet, but I was trying to introduce more vegetables because we're a fruit family. We don't eat a lot of vegetables. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for myself. You've been seeing me do it. Lettuce is one of the easy vegetables. And then we had that conversation. And now she will never think my mom was forcing salads on me because she wants me skinny, which she could have rightfully inferred given, Mm -hmm. you know, the situation. So sometimes more like what are you really doing is is also a good part of the conversation. A hundred percent. All right. Well. Lisa, I know you have a packed schedule, but we do want to talk some about the adaptation of three women. Kate, you want to? Clearly, we are so excited about this. So you're executive producing along with Emmy Rossum and House of Cards alum. Laura Eason is the showrunner, we understand. And we know that there's a character added that is you, based on you, Gia, played by Shailene Woodley. So this is your first foray into TV. So we want to know everything about the experience, the thrills, the challenges, the surprises. Oh, it is a lot. It is mm-hmm. um, a lot of work. It is humbling, gratifying, exciting, exhausting, painful. I have gone through the spectrums of every feeling doing oh. this. Also, you know, the real women aspect of Maggie, she came out to Hawaii to watch some of her scenes being filmed Mm. uh, with Gabby Creevy, who was playing her. They got to meet. It was beautiful. There's been like these intense like ups and downs of emotions across the board. It's been really cool and gigantically exhausting. And and we're not done. We're done shooting, but now we're in post-production. So we're kind of going through cuts and it's funny. It's like I used to look, I used to, um, I, you know, have looked at TV shows and when something's like really not good or I'm just like, oh, God, why why they let? And now I'm like, oh, and now no, you're I like, know. it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. There's so many people. There's so many voices. There's so many ideas. And it's great. And, and, and sometimes that is like the most amazing thing. And then other times it's like, okay, 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 just, can we just, can we just stop? Like, let's just do it this way. And just, it's a lot, but it's it's exciting. And some of uh, um, the episodes I've seen so far, I'm really excited about. So I know you were shooting in my hometown, Greenport at the little blue duck bakery. That's right. We shut down. 
That. Yeah, that oh my gosh, that's crazy. Wait, were you there? You I was there. I was and I didn't know and I would have gone down. I did not know. I know. Yeah. Oh and I God. didn't know either and I don't live far away either. So I could have uh, oh. we saw it after. We're like we could have oh, gone. Stop oh, the set. I was there. I would have loved to. <laughs> oh no, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we discuss TV shows on Pop Fiction Women, we always highlight when it's clear that we're getting a view from the elusive female gaze, right? Sally Rooney's adaptations do this very well. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of bare chests, butts, male nudity. Of course, the original mold shatterer was Dirty Dancing, seeing all that Patrick Mm -hmm. Swayze. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that we're going to enjoy that same point of view in Three Women. You mentioned that the show gives sexuality a voice and a feeling. So can you talk a little bit about that? One of the things that we all were pretty focused on is how does the sex feel for the woman? What is she thinking of about where is her gaze going in the moment? Was she thinking about the way that her face looks? And hopefully it's cutting together that way. But one of my headlines was I want there to be more male nudity than female nudity. And not just to even out the decks, but because this is the female gaze. And if if they if the women are, you know, there's one woman in it who is also attracted to women. So we have her looking at, at women also. But when it's heterosexual, then we're looking at the man more, you know, because we're gazing at the parts of a man that a woman is thinking about. There's one scene where it was important to me that the woman is masturbating kind of to the idea of this man fixing something. And the woman who is fantasizing about it is not a woman who normally needs things fixed by men. So it's kind of the idea mm, oh, yeah. of, of yeah, playing with, with what is erotic, how that changes, and what is erotic mm. to a woman, not what is classically erotic and statically erotic, but how the complexities of it. So I, I think mm. and hope that we are doing that as much as possible. But that was definitely my my main desire in this. And you, that's something you really get right in in all of your writing. So I can see that that would translate. It's like the, the Kate read earlier, the spacing of her breasts. That's something a guy doesn't notice. Yeah. It's something a woman would notice. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Thrillingly spaced. You know, in, in the heterosexual gaze, what we do is we take a man's gaze and we fine tune it and we're like, okay, I know what you want. Here's what you want. And here is really what you are looking at, even though you don't even know because you just saw a nipple and that's where your brain stopped. But the reason this (laughs) nipple is more exciting is because of this. And I know that because I've internalized your gaze, internalized it onto myself and then laser beamed it out across the world so I could see how everybody else looked too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we. I saw the interview with Blair Underwood where he was <laughs> amazing and blushing. I mean, saying that this was like the most risque thing he's ever done, which I I'm excited. Amazing. And then you know, because you're not you're not busy enough. I just I want to oh. ask you, you know, about this memoir on grief that you had mentioned. If you're that's, still working on that, or if that's what's still, up next. I am still working on that. I'm also working on the film adaptation of Animal and. Oh a couple of other TV projects and film projects and the grief wow. books. So yeah, there's a good bit to do. There's a lot going on. I feel incredibly fortunate because there were so many years 
many, many, many decades of writing without knowing what was going to come of it. And to be in this spot is really, I, I feel lucky and grateful. It is also incredibly haunting and exhausting and scary and feeling like I'm going to let people down. But yes, I'm working on things. I'm excited about the stuff I'm working on. I'm just really also scared and tired. Well, yes, <laughs> we we can understand that. I wanted to just touch really quickly on the grief that's in Ghost Lover because it does feel like a fresher, fresh meaning new, as opposed to I think in Three Women and even in Animal, that grief had really sunk down to deeper levels of cells. And I thought it was really interesting to see it really as armor. There's so much vulnerability in what you write, Lisa. It's incredible. And even the most callous or crass statement, cruel statement that you write, there's such a vulnerability layered into it. You can tell it's a it's an armor. And I, I found it really interesting to see it in all these stories as well. And you can see how the pain has made them not want to curl up and die. I guess we talked about it last time, like a tiger bite. They actually kind of become a tiger and they are then hunting and hungry and kind of pacing and looking for something to dig their teeth into because that's what it's done to them. And it's made them bold and fearless, not in a great way, but in a way like how much fear can a numb person actually experience. And I feel like that comes through so beautifully in your writing. I feel like you guys get me so much and I feel really fortunate about that because that's really for me it's like people are like oh there's sex 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 and I'm like there's it's really mainly pain and grief is part of the armor in this case it's more about the numbing oneself that it's really you know most of my backstory but I had a lot of grief and so a lot of my character's are traumatized and becoming tigers that it, that's exact. I mean, you just put it better than I could have <laughs> put it. You don't, and anyone listening to this doesn't need to read the collection because Corinne just, <laughs> no, I mean, please still read the collection. Yes, yes. <laughs> but um, but <laughs> it's, it's that distillation is so, is really makes me feel seen because that's really what it is. It's, it's that pain and that, and, and when you have so much pain, you have to create an armor. And when women create armor, they're judged for it. And it's like, but yeah. have you, do you not know what we've had to go through yeah. to yeah. even to fit it to our skin when mm. our skin is changing? Yeah. yeah. When you write about grief, I yeah. just have to tell you, yeah. I feel seen. I mean, yeah. completely. So I, we talked about it last time. And ever since I, Corinne knows this, I have used your tiger bite line to explain oh. to people what it feels like. And I am like single-handedly trying to change the narrative thanks oh. to you when I talk to people about grief. I don't want to give the Hallmark version. I want to tell them it's like being bitten by a tiger yeah. and it's brutal. And I just want to be honest about it. And I got that from really from our discussion and from your writing on it. So so thank yeah. you, really. Oh, gosh. Lisa, you mm. are one of those. Well, we don't need to say how incredible and special and amazing you are. But Kate and I, we don't always like the same things. The same things don't always land for us. And we always appreciate the other person's point of view. But with your work, you land so hard for both of us, but in different ways. And so when we have a conversation, yeah. Kate and I have a conversation about your work, it opens up even more than reading it alone. And that is just such a gift. Oh, that we don't means get. so much to me. I cannot <laughs> thank you enough, really. That really well, 
Thank you. And I know you're busy and it's a lot, but we are rabid for more. So so you'll have to come back in the fall to to discuss the show when it comes out too. I would love to do that. Good. So much, you guys. All right. Well, thank you, Lisa. We're going to let you go and keep you on time. Yes. Everyone go get Ghost Lover. Yes. Ghost Lover is out now. Thank you so much. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes. Tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated. <laughs>